and welcome to Better Done Than Perfect, podcast for SaaS founders and product people. Today, our awesome guest is Carl Hughes, the founder of Draft.dev, a very famous content agency. We're going to talk about niche technical content that's the hardest to produce. This show is brought to you by Userlist, the best tool for sending onboarding emails and segmenting your SaaS users. To follow the best practices, download our free printable email planning worksheets at userlist.com worksheets. Hey, Carl. Hey, Jane. Good to be here. We are so excited to learn from you. There is like 3,000 questions I want to ask on the topic. But before we do that, give us some background. You kind of like grew really fast and became really high demand uh, very quickly with Drop.dev. So tell us more about that and a little bit of your background. Yeah. So I have been for the last 10 years or so working with the more funded tech startups in Chicago. I've been an engineer and then engineering manager. And my most recent role is a CTO and first engineering hire at a company. During COVID, things sort of hit a wall for the company. We're in this weird spot with funding cycles where we needed to raise money, but COVID hit and it's really hard to raise money during that period. Plus we had a lot of customers that were like, no, we're not spending any money. So bad timing, which happens. And so we decided like to put the engineering team, including myself down to half time. And that honestly is where I decided, well, I've got 20 hours a week or so to figure out what I want to do with myself next. And so I started draft.dev at that point. And initially for the first few months, it was just me writing some articles for some clients and friends. And within, I would say probably six months or so, I'd gone full time and started hiring an editor and a couple of writers. And, and now we're up to you know a full-time team of eight a year later. And we've got over 150 writers and contractors doing various, various tasks for production with us. So before we talk about content and how to produce it, Let's 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 get your definition of what good technical content is and uh, how that differs from SEO technical content and <laughs> like other fun content, whatever. Like what's good content in your mind? Well, <laughs> I would say good content in any situation is the content that moves your marketing goals forward if it's assuming this is marketing driven content. To be honest, so what we do is is very specifically technical content aimed at software engineers and all written by software engineers. And now we kind of branch out a bit into like DevOps and data engineering and things that are tangentially related, but we're very focused on this little narrow sphere of writing. So some clients use us for really top of funnel marketing goals. So in other words, like let's write an article that might get shared widely on Reddit in this particular subreddit that, that kind of we, we think might be you know interesting to these developers. Or let's write something aimed at a keyword that maybe doesn't have a lot of competition. And a lot of the, the top articles for that keyword are very boring and kind of like clearly just SEO, uh, I'll call them SEO hack jobs. Just do really like low quality, cheap to produce, you know, fast writing. We see that stuff a lot. And so what we'll do is come in and create an article that's a really deep technical piece that's interesting to the audience and hopefully more engaging than what's out there and gets ranked better in general. So that's the kind of stuff we do. Now, as far as good content, your question, it really depends on what your goals are. And I think this is one thing that a lot of our clients may struggle with even like before they're ready to work with a company like us. And that's, 
you know, are we trying to build, say, top of funnel? So that, that means like, are we trying to just get people aware that we exist? We don't care if they convert initially. We're just really trying to say like, let's get them on our newsletter. Let's get them like seeing our brand name. That's that's one option. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there could be content that is aimed at converting people who are already super familiar with your product. In a lot of our cases, we have a lot of we work with a lot of developer tools companies that maybe have an open source or free tier for the users to get started. So bottom of funnel content might be all about converting people from we're using the the free or open source version. Let's get them converted over to a paid version where they're now on a monthly plan and using it with their team or whatever those upgrades are. So you have to look back and think like, what are we trying to get out of each piece? And what I typically do when creating content is think about like, where does this fit in the client's funnel? And like, how can we direct the, you know, the calls to action, the way we talk about the product at that piece, that stage of the funnel? There are several contradicting trends I'm observing in the space. One is kind of bad is that traditional articles are not they don't seem as exciting anymore to share. And you can get more eyeballs from a Twitter thread, which you put together in 20 minutes, as opposed to, you know, writing something for three hours or five days. And another trend is completely different, is that basically uh, just the blog format is uh, SEO slash read worthy. So their traditional landing pages are moving into the shape of blog posts, which are informative, but have a more or less, you know, marketing related call to action. So these are like, blogging is dead, uh, long live (laughs) blogging, you know, (laughs) where do you stand? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like calling it blogging now, it does still, even to me, like we, and we use this word all the time, like it's, sorry, (laughs) it it feels a little antiquated, right? Like, I mean, Because like a lot of these blogs, especially by the top companies in most spaces are, they're really publications or um, informational like hubs or knowledge bases Um, and all those, those words. It's like, who cares? At the end of the day, like we're producing valuable content. I don't, I really don't care what a client is calling it as far as the category, but it does help a little bit frame like how you think about that content. And like, if the goal of your publication uh, or your blog or whatever is just getting users like into your world and familiar with what you do, you might write very different stuff than if your goal is maybe just company updates, which some people just, that's literally all they write on their blog. It's like, here's the new feature we released, which may not get you again, like top of funnel eyeballs. Maybe nobody new comes into your product, but it is interesting to some subset of your users and to people who are learning about your product in a deeper way. So yeah, I, I don't know. Naming is funny, but I'll say that like, I think content is very valuable and whatever format you pick depends a bit on your strengths and like where your team is best suited to, to deliver. So video is another one that these days is getting a lot of, a lot of traction in certain markets and video content's awesome. It's, it's a great alternative, but it can also be a good supplement to written content. So they're also not mutually exclusive. Your Twitter thread example is actually a great one. So a lot of times what I do is I'll write a full blog post, but then I will turn that into several Twitter threads over the course of several months. And they may or may not link back to the original blog post. It doesn't, that part doesn't matter as much. It's about getting the idea and the concept out there. I think a lot of people forget that just because you've written something once on the internet, it does not mean that it's done. Like you can never say that idea again. Like the best ideas come through hundreds of times by the founders or, or you know, marketing team or whatever in just different formats, different ways. So you can get your ideas out there in many channels. So the problem you're solving for people is 
you know, there is a SaaS business and it's typically the founder or the founders who hold the industry expertise and maybe a couple more people. And these people are busy, so they can't be writing, but they still want to put out quality content. And there's an army of writers out there in the internet, but they're not capable of pulling this off because they don't know the industry as well. So you solve this problem. How do you do that? Yeah. And the way you'd framed it is a one use case. I would actually say that we see a, a wider variety of use cases than I would have thought initially starting draft.dev. So for example, in some cases, it is the, the matter of like, we are a brand new company. We're trying to get out there in the world. We want our ideas to come out a little, you know, a little stronger. In other cases, it's more established businesses that have like a lot of, they almost have like a backlog of uh, documentation debt or tutorial debt to build up. So in developer tools, one of the big common challenges is you have to build integration guides and getting started guides and every programming language and framework that you can imagine. Like that's just to hit to parity with like the top competitors in your space. You're going to need to have a guide in Python, JavaScript, PHP, every major language so that you can send those to customers whenever they ask about it. So one common use case again is like, let's have draft.dev get together a team of writers who can fill in all these different gaps for us in the content perspective. And that's a little less about like getting our worldview out there and more about like actually just you know, helping people use the product, which is ultimately what we all want. So yeah, there's different use cases and none are right or wrong, but it kind of goes back to that question of what are your goals at this point? What is the stage you're at? Where is what's the most important thing? It's great that you touched upon knowledge-based writing because that's the type of the docs we're talking about. So in your work that you produce, what part is knowledge-based technical instructional writing versus publications? Yeah, it's it's a, a variety. So we probably do, we actually split it up into three different content types. So I'll kind of talk about this because it might be helpful for other industries as well. We have step-by-step -step tutorials, which are, you know, we're going to get you code samples, a GitHub repo, screenshots, all that good stuff. This is again, like supplements your documentation or maybe shows use cases for your product. And then we've got roundups and comparisons. So these are going to show your product or maybe tangentially related products in the space uh, versus each other and kind of compare some of the pros and cons. And again, because we have developers writing these things, they're people who have used these sorts of tools before. And in most cases, you've used the client's tool before. So that's really helpful for showcasing what you're good at and what you're not good at. Those may live in a knowledge base. They may live as a landing page, as a standalone landing page. It just depends how the company does it. And then finally, we do a lot of higher level guides and introductions and deep dives, which are you know, I kind of lumped these all together because essentially we may do code samples, but we're not building a whole demo app. Instead, we're talking about, say, like a high level view of how Docker networking works and all the major commands you can use and then what you use it for or something like that. So it's, again, like just an overview of a certain topic area. And what clients will use this for is either SEO purposes is one good you know, use case, but also just as a way to show that they are experts in the space and that they know what what's going on and how this stuff works because developers see that and they say, Oh, okay. So this company understands Docker networking. That's great because I've been looking for, you know, a tool that helps me with this. So that's the kind of stuff that we, how we break it down. Now, again, like there's different goals for each of these kinds of pieces. There's different clients at different stages of their company where they've got like more or fewer you know, people in-house helping produce this stuff. But that's sort of where we see ourselves slotting in. What's your recommendation where, so you describe different content types. Where should this all live? There are at least two places on the SaaS website. Uh, one is the knowledge base and the other is 
the blog, whatever, sure. articles. Yeah. And we often get torn, like, because something is, you know, knowledge-based worthy because it's clearly about how to use the product, but also some stuff is kind of mixed not sure where it should go like what's <laughs> yeah. what's your what's your recommendation how to classify that content there's okay. also yeah. you know resource libraries that people yeah. put together yeah. and i love it like we've been discussing these kind of taxonomies for different content types uh, with yeah. uh, benedict my co-founder but like if you have a special folder for case studies or a special folder for guides but people don't find that folder that's worse um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so this is a great question. And it's one that companies face, especially as they scale up content production and you start going into like, oh, we've got a back. Now we've got 50, 60 articles. It's really hard to find everything. Right. So I, I think in the early days, I wouldn't worry about this too much. You know, one thing that a, a mistake you might make is getting paralyzed by the fact that there's so many options for how you can, you know, where you're going to publish this content until you know what works and what works well and what it's why clients are, or customers are coming to that content and how effective it is, maybe hold off on worrying about organizing it. Just throw it all into blog, you know, like make it really simple on yourself. And once you get to somewhere in the range of 40 to 100 pieces of content there, you, you do need to start thinking about organization and reclassifying things. So at that point, to your point, start to think about what are the major, what makes sense from a usability standpoint as far as grouping content together. What we do with our our blog slash whatever learning center draft.dev is we essentially will put each piece into a, a category and then also have a different call to action tagged on each piece so that depending on where it is in the funnel, it's going to get a different encouragement for the, the user to a reader to come in and like either download a ebook or book a call with us directly, depending on, you know, again, how familiar they probably are when they're looking at this piece. So that's another thing you can do is like vary your calls to action based on where the piece is in the funnel. And then putting it into a different category is going to help like a user who reads this one piece see like, oh, what other related content might there be? And it might also help search engines find that stuff too. I would say, again, like getting worried about this is or getting um, hung up on this is maybe it's not the biggest problem that most companies ha have or not the real blocker because at the end of the day, like 90% of people are going to read one post and then be gone. You know, <laughs> like it, it, that's like... The sad truth of writing content online is that like it's it's rare that people go back and say, oh, I'd love to look through this company's archive and see every post they've written. And I want to see all the similar posts. Like, I know it happens, but it's not that common. So don't be like, don't put your expectations on that. Sad but true. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us, what's your secret for finding people willing to write? This is like your secret sauce, I guess. Uh, that's what most people are struggling with. Yeah. So in our world specifically, I, and I've written, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say it's secret. I, I've written a blog post about this. I'll send you a link to it. And what we do, it's, it's sort of a, a multi, multi-pronged approach because we, we recruit writers at scale. Essentially, we've got over 150 active writers right now, and we're, you know, growing consistently as we grow our client base. So there's a few things. First and foremost, we started off with just like who do we know already? So it started with my network and my friends' networks and things like that. So just posting on social media, getting you know the word out there. And then as we got more, um, got bigger, we started to put on job boards. So there's a couple like specifically niche job boards aimed at our world of like programmers or remote programmers or part-time programming jobs, things like that. And then the last thing that we do, which is more, this is more like specific kind of case by case is we actually recruit specific 
writers for specific articles. So for example, if somebody came to us with like an article about something, very, a very obscure piece of technology that to be honest, like very few people have worked on or written on, it was mostly deprecated. And so we had to go out and find a writer who actually used to work at the company several years ago and see if they wanted to, you know, sort of like come in and write this one piece of content. So we actually go out and recruit specifically for very niche pieces when needed, you know, and, and that's, that's just sometimes a necessary thing when we're dealing with this kind of really technical content. Is price an issue? Can you like, because developers make a ton <laughs> and sure. writers typically not that, Don't not that much, much. Yeah. <laughs> not that much. Uh, what is, uh, how much do you pay your writers and how much do you charge your clients ultimately for, yeah, for the yeah. complete pieces? So the, the economics of this are, it, it's a little more complicated than uh, working with sort of dedicated freelance writers. So when you hire a freelance writer who's a full-time freelance writer, their primary objective is to make a living doing this writing, correct? Whereas most of our writers make a living as full-time software engineers. And this is side money. This is a thing they do nights and weekends or you know maybe between jobs or just something as a break. And so for those people, the motivation for like money is, is great. Like we pay, uh, we're sort of in line with the standard, which is three to $500 per post to writers. Um, and then on the, uh, like on the back end, what writers are getting out of it is they're getting their article out there, which again, it may take more hours. It may not be as like great of an hourly rate as their engineering salary, but they're going to get their name on the piece. So we don't do typically don't do ghostwriting. The author's getting their like attribution. They're getting like, you know, details about what they do and their career. So it's a great branding exercise for our engineers who are looking to maybe make that move from mid-level to senior, looking for a job in the future. And a lot of them tell me stories about, you know, getting reached out to because of articles they've written through us for jobs and freelance opportunities and things like that. So it's complicated. It's not quite a straight you know, money is not the only motivator when you're working with a subject matter expert who's already got money taken care of. They're looking for other things. Can you kind of hack this by having a professional journalist or a good writer and interviewing a subject matter expert for an hour or two instead of having them find time in their busy schedule and sit down and write? Absolutely. And it depends a lot on what the type of writing is. So let's say like a, a hands-on tutorial where we're showing you how to use, integrate two APIs together and there's tons of code samples. Maybe not. I mean, that one might be tough for a, a ghostwriter to, to sort of come in and, and fill in the gaps. That said, what you can do is you could get an engineer who knows how to do that stuff to write you very simple instructions and then maybe have a, a technical-ish writer or editor kind of come in and fill the gaps. We've done that a few times with pieces that were really specific. But the other approach is if you're doing higher level stuff, like you're, you're saying, like, we want to talk about the future of Kubernetes and how it's going to change the development landscape or whatever that is, you know, that is the kind of thing where you can absolutely have a ghostwriter interview your CTO, your head of engineering or something, and get them to put together a piece on it. Now, ghostwriters who are capable of doing that are pretty expensive, usually more expensive than we charge per article because of the like the nature of how specific that skill is. And if they've actually worked with you know tech companies that are uh, and tech executives, they can be pretty pricey. But you may get lucky and find somebody who's like more junior that's looking to you know build their career up and get started. And in that case, you know you might find a, a a good deal out there. What does a typical production cycle look like for 
an in-depth uh, technical article. Yeah. So before I started Draft.dev, I used to write for companies like uh, DigitalOcean and LogRocket. So I got to see from a writer's perspective, like, what does it look like to work at these companies that do technical content production at scale? And uh, so we sort of like took some best practices from several different places and, and people to pull this together. And we've got our process pretty, um, pretty, pretty fully outlined on our site and some different blog posts. But the way it works first is we have a, a briefing and outline creation process, work with the clients to create detailed outlines about a page each for each article. And we have full-time and freelance engineers who help us write those, those outlines. So we get pretty technical in them and we're showing like specific steps and things we're going to mention, technologies we're going to link off to, et cetera. Clients will approve those and then we get into the writing. For us, we've got a big pool of writers and a large pool of clients and work coming in every month. And so the challenge is to, to match those up and make sure that we don't lose track of, of things along the way. So we've built a lot of automation that probably aren't necessary at small scale. But once you get to like a scale like ours, where you're doing hundreds of articles a month, it, it's absolutely necessary. And for that, what we do is we'll, we tag writers and pieces with different skill sets that are needed and the types of writing and make sure we find good matches across the board. So that, that's that. We get those matched off. And then we have a tech review process. Once the writing is done, we have a developmental edit and a copy edit. And what's really interesting there is that we've, you know, we used to compress those roles into one. We used to have like one dedicated kind of technical reviewer, editor or something. And that was fine. It's like small scale, but it's really hard to find people with that level of crossover skill. People who are really good writers and editors and copy editors, like notice detail. So what we've done is sort of turn those into multiple roles. And so each piece that we're producing goes through five or six people by the time it goes back to a client. But that's kind of the only way you can do this stuff at a level of scale that we're doing. So again, smaller companies can get away with maybe having one really good developmental editor or technical editor but bigger companies are usually going to start building out different roles for each of those steps. What is developmental editing? Because technical, I guess it's the subject matter. Like yep. if, it, if yeah. it's like, it sounds legit, <laughs> copy editing, obviously, but uh, developmental. Yeah. So technical editing, I'll just kind of go through each of those steps because it might be helpful for people who aren't as familiar with the, the whole editorial flow. Technical ed review and editing, we, we go through, we run the code samples. We make sure that what the writer said is technically accurate and can be verified uh, that, that all that is there. Developmental edits is more about like, does it flow and is there a story and is it like good writing? And so just at a higher level, looking at the whole piece and saying, is it match the outline? And does it actually like, are they explaining the why? Are they really going into enough detail? Do they have all their sources cited? Things like that. And then copy editing is going to be that final, like kind of almost grammarly level check, you know, and, and having dedicated copy editors, even if you have tools that help them, you still kind of need someone to be that final call on like, is this the correct formatting? Is it in the, the style guide that we have or the client has? So that stuff gets, it's actually pretty tough. And what's interesting is like, we used to try to, again, we used to try to hire one person who could do all that, but think about the skills involved. This is very different at, at each of those levels. And so finding those unicorn people is not a scalable model. Instead, you want to start breaking that up into different roles as you, as you grow out a content production agency. We are going to have Kieran Tai, hopefully soon, who has started the editing uh, agency specifically. So I'm going to ask <laughs> another yeah. 10,000 questions about <laughs> editing there. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah. And I'm not an expert editor either. Like I'll say like, 
that was the first role I hired for. And my managing editor is fantastic. And I'm so glad that I have her because it drains me to the max to have to edit articles. <laughs> it's my, it's my worst skill. One refining question to this process, uh, who decides what to write about, uh, is it the client who typically comes to you with their content plan? And let's leave SEO aside a little bit because that's a different story. But if they are like, their goal is to build authority and just like substantially awesomely write, uh, how do they define what to write about? Yeah, that's interesting. I I would kind of push back against leaving SEO out, even if your goal is authority. Like there, there's no reason that you can't write good authoritative pieces that are also valuable in Google results. Mm -hmm. um, and so I mean, best case scenario is you do both at the same time where you've got this like really interesting kind of controversial piece or something. So for example, I'll, I'll give you a personal example because I've written this kind of stuff before. I wrote a piece last year on why you should never do startup consulting, which is, I like titled the piece like a little bit, you know, it's a little clickbaity, sure. But like, I actually do have like pretty strong opinions about why consulting for startups, like early stage startups is really tough and risky and a challenge for consultants. And so I put this out there and it ranks in the top, like the first result for or first or second result usually around startup consulting. And so I get a ton of traffic to my personal blog and I get outreach all the time about like people who are startup consultants that want to know about that. Topic. What's the strategic? Did you know about the keyword? Absolutely. Okay. So I looked at the keyword <laughs> and I thought this is actually something I have a strong opinion about. Like it wasn't just, I looked at the keyword, just tried to write some fluffy article to fill the, the keyword gaps. It was like, I'm actually going to talk about like from personal experience, why it's really hard to consult for startups. Um, so first and foremost, I just like take issue with like SEO content can be interesting, I think. Um, uh, but you absolutely do have to think about it and be like, um, you, you kind of have to go above and beyond. And that's sort of, again, where like a lot of our clients, when they bring us in for SEO type content, they're looking at it like, okay, the number one article on something really general, like, uh, let's say data warehouses is some 500 word snippet from IBM. And it only ranks at the top because it's like IBM wrote it. It's really not a great article. It's like clearly marketing, you know, just like fluff. So what if we wrote a really deep dive into what is a data warehouse? What's the future of data warehouses? You know, we get an engineer who actually knows this stuff to write stuff, but could we outrank or could we get right below it and make a much better impression on people? And that's absolutely, in a lot of cases, it's true. Because there are other ways to come up with ideas. And I actually just did a talk at DevRelCon about coming up with ideas that resonate with a technical audience. So keyword research is one. That's great. The other three that I talk about are, one is sharing your worldview. So what makes our product different, our, our sort of the future of, of our space different, et cetera. A lot of times these come from the founder, either them writing solo or through Ghostwriter. Another one is going to, we've kind of talked about this already, but like going to your documentation and helping supplement it with tutorials and in-depth guides that help users understand your product better or the space better. And then the last one is community-based research. So instead of going to keywords and like going to Google and saying what ranks well, you go to say Reddit, you go to Stack Overflow, you go to Hacker News and you see what articles in our space have done well in the past that we could either take a new take on, maybe they're old or out of date. Or could we like have our unique approach to and sort of like put a new spin on that idea? And so that's sort of like looking at what resonates with your community of developers. Same like you go Slack groups, you, wherever, whatever makes sense based on your, your audience. You mentioned before that different stages of company development from, you know, a one person team to a small team to enterprise client who you also have, have different content needs. 
Tell us more. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the go-to-market content strategy is is likely much different from the strategy that you use once you've got a 10-person content team that's producing and promoting content and trying to do multiple things all at once. So uh, for example, um, I'm trying to think of a I think of a couple of good examples here. So on one extreme, we work with some really small companies that are just trying to get the, they're trying to get the bare minimum out there. And a lot of times that is stuff that they'll, they'll have a mix of content of around like showing uh, their product off. So just showing the key features of it, showing how to integrate with other services that people might commonly do. This kind of content is really valuable because if you're out there producing or whatever, getting out into whatever channels you have, and then customers come to you and they say, oh, this looks cool, but does it do X? And you can send them to a blog post that overcomes that sort of question or objection. You save your support team time. You save your sales team time. You get people closing without going through maybe sales calls. Because again, developer the developer audience is like, doesn't really want to hop on a call. Like I know this is different in some industries than others, but our industry tends to be like a little more averse to that. So we're looking at content that could kind of close the the gap to getting a purchase done. Um, on the other extreme, we have a lot of bigger companies that are maybe looking at ranking really highly in search engines because they have the domain authority to do so and all their competitors do it as well. And so they're looking at like, you know, let's build out um, like this just scaled up content production, you know, machine where they might be doing 20, 30 posts a month and getting like tons of keyword coverage and interlinking and building backlinks and all that stuff. Now, that's really hard to pull off when you're like one single founder who's managing a content team. You know, it's like doing that at, at one person is almost impossible. But yeah, I and mean, those are some extreme examples. I think a lot of our clients ride the line between those, those two extremes and they're kind of doing some blend of content, which is probably smart. How do you do it that your best pieces of content don't get lost in the timeline? How to show them off? And if you have a big library, uh, how do you decide what gets, you know, what gets the top place on the articles page? And like very often I would do guest posts somewhere and then the next day I would find it on like page three, which sure. like is not exciting for me as a, as a author but yeah. it, it you know gives me some insight into how they operate i'm still not sure how but what's the strategy there for really big companies who have like you know even if you do four posts a month you're gonna hit that problem very soon yeah yeah so deciding what to you know it's interesting like what goes on your blog archive page like the first page I actually think that's a little less important than the question of what do you promote actively to your audience or get out in front of people. So one of the the big um, the big barriers to scaling content production is not having enough bandwidth to promote it adequately. So when I say that, what I mean is like each post that you write needs to go out, sure, on your social channels, but you can also schedule it to be published again on your social channels in a few weeks or months. You can spin each piece of, piece of content into multiple tweets and LinkedIn threads and whatever else like makes sense for the piece of content. You could have a video version of it that you record. Uh, and then you can go do things like active outreach to promote the piece. So for example, I write pieces kind of aimed at certain audiences where I know there's newsletters that cover that, that space. I may pitch those pieces directly to newsletter owners. That's a really great way to get more exposure that's outside of your normal sphere. So there's a lot of things like that you can do and you should do if you, you know, want to get the most 
sort of runway out of each piece of content. I think a lot of people fail to do that. It's really, this is kind of why the problem <laughs> like comes that they essentially like write all these pieces and they're like, this isn't going anywhere. We're not getting any value out of content. This doesn't work for us. You know, and they just draw that conclusion right away. So just to recap, this idea has already been mentioned in our interview today. You should not hope that people will dig through archives and find something. The best two ways are to actively surface it through promotion or hope that they find it via SEO. Question. Yeah. And, and SEO is a mathematical game in a lot of ways. I'm not saying it's completely predictable, but it, it is largely a function of like how complete is that piece of content if, for answering the query and how many backlinks does it have from good reputable sources. So while we don't do, you know, backlink building, I mean, that's a whole business in itself. Um, and I honestly don't do it. So I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I take an unconventional approach to backlink building and that's, a, I don't know how much we want to get into this, but like, I, I actually think that um, a lot of it comes from sharing your content well and completely across channels that make sense for it. And so, for example, that newsletter outreach thing that I mentioned, a lot of times what happens is we'll share something with a, a newsletter that's very relevant, then it gets picked up and linked to in other blogs and spaces around the internet that picks up and if something gets submitted, let's say to Hacker News and it does well there, it'll pick up a ton of backlinks naturally. So there's just a lot you can do there without having to do the whole like cold email every single website that has a similar link and ask them to put a link in. I've never done that. So I don't know if it works, but it's not something I would personally do. <laughs> this newsletter outreach process is pretty fascinating. Do you feel like you pull this off well because you have relationships with everybody already? It helps. Or, I mean, the more, yeah. The, so there's a couple of ways you can do this. Like we, <laughs> we do this, this with a few niche newsletters that are in our space of developer marketing. It's like we sponsor them regularly. So I have a really good relationship with the people who run those newsletters. And if I have a really good authentic piece of content that I think they should consider, I'll send it to them. There's no obligation. They don't promote all of them, but it certainly like doesn't hurt that like they're, they're always looking for content. One thing you, you have to remember is like newsletter writers are also hungry for content. It's not like they just always have tons of stuff that's really high quality to post. Like I've run, I think, three newsletters for the last few years, and it's so hard to come up with new stuff every week. I mean, if you're covering a niche space, so help them out, you know, be like a source for really good content. There is uh, Sarah Duty who runs a UX newsletter, and she's been running it for like 10 years, and I've been doing the podcast for like, well, seven years, <laughs> and I just consistently find myself promoted there, and I'm eternally grateful, but I kind of see that it's like it makes the job easier for her to know that like it's yes. it's on that we have another good episode coming out if you have breakfast and stuff like that yeah and those people are often connectors like they they have a lot of subscribers who may come to them and ask them about who's the place you go to for x and the more you have like your name in their minds you know the better that's going to be in the long run like i also look at content it, it's not all about just traffic. It's the quality of that traffic. And so if you're writing just pieces that are aimed purely at just getting, you know, hits from Google and none of that converts to a paying user or a newsletter subscriber or somebody you can build a real relationship with, what's the point? Like you've got to have stuff that is building relationships and helping, helping people like understand and trust you better. Among the posts that your agency has created, how many have gone truly viral popular 
That's a great question. I, you know, cause we don't get involved in the promotion side. Like we're, we're exclusively production focused agency and there's pros and cons to that. The, the con is we don't always know how well things do. Like I've had clients come back months later and say, oh yeah, that piece did awesome. We can't wait to get, you know, the next round going. I'm like, oh, I wish I'd known that, you know, like I should have. So this is actually one of the things as we've grown, we've been looking at, could we start to either use tools or automatically understand how things are doing and like, see if we can like, there's a, there's a few things that we've looked into like BuzzSumo that tells you about like, yeah, the, the backlinks on social and stuff like that. It doesn't, I, and honestly, I'd love to hear if somebody knows how to use BuzzSumo well. I haven't found it to be super accurate yet. So maybe their data is not great, but uh, we also use like Ahrefs to, to go kind of like see if any of our articles have done really well in Google searches as well. Um, you know, cause if we wrote a piece and it's now a number one for a really good keyword, we might tell the client proactively just to be like, Hey, just so you know, we saw this. So we've had a couple pieces though, go viral on either Reddit or Hacker News within their little sub niches. Um, and you know, it just, it's, it's one of those things I, I can't tell you that I would predict, uh, necessarily which ones would go, you know, do well or not. But I will say that like, it does tend to be stuff that is deep, technically interesting, like written by subject matter experts. I mean, that's why all the stuff we do tends to be in that vein. Um, and you sort of have to have to really know the the space and the people you're talking to. It can't sound like marketing speak. It's got to be really helpful, educational, interesting content. I'd love to see, maybe you could mention like three from the top of your head pieces of content that you're amazingly proud of. Put for your clients <laughs> yeah, or yeah. for yourself, maybe. Yeah. So we've done a lot of posts over the last year and a half. And I had done, I'd written a lot before that too, as you know, I'd been a software engineer and writing on the side and, and things. So a couple that stand out though, we we did a, a big deep dive with Fabric, which is a headless e-commerce system backend essentially. And we did a deep dive into like how to build a scalable e-commerce data model. One of our writers, James, did this. It's super interesting. He went and he did a lot of diagrams around like how to like sort of go from just the very basics of an e-commerce data model all the way up to a more complex one. And along the way, he's mentioning that there's actually even more to this uh, if you really go deeper and you really want to like build a, a real scalable product from scratch. And obviously the target here is you know, if a developer is out there looking for a scalable e-commerce data model and they're wanting to build one on their own, the question they have to always ask is, do we build versus buy? Like, are we going to go license a headless e-commerce platform like Fabric or do we want to do it in-house? So the piece is genuinely helpful if you do want to do it in-house, but it also has like this obvious, you know, tie-in to what Fabric does. So it shows their expertise. Um, this did really well in Hacker News. I know it got them several sales leads just from this one article, which is is pretty cool and not... I mean, you know, I, I like to warn it with like, these results are not necessarily typical, but it's, it has done really well. And it was a really good piece. The other one that comes to mind is this one on uh, Docker networking, which is just a deep dive we did for a company called Earthly. Uh, and they, um, they're in the Docker space, essentially, to keep it higher level here. And so with this, it's not really even, it doesn't even mention their product. It's just a really deep introduction to what Docker networking is, the types of Docker networking that you can do, uh, how it works under the hood a little bit. And so if you're a developer that's just like at all researching this topic, you're going to run across things like this and be like, oh, this is really cool. This like this kind of explains a lot of why things work. One thing that I find really separates 
mediocre technical writing from good stuff is the the mediocre stuff tells you like how stuff works so just the very basics of like do this do this it's very instructional the really good stuff tells you why it works the way it does like gets one level deeper it's not just how it's also why and that can help a lot with getting context and things doing well um, and getting shared so that one's done really well on search engines and social at times and then um, a couple others that i'll mention they've done well on reddit and hacker news one I did a few years ago called the bulk of software engineering is just plumbing. This kind of goes back to the whole, like oh, this piece is definitely not engineered for SEO because it ranks for stupid terms like plumbing, which is not what it's about. But um, the, the, the sort of thing I was trend I was seeing here was that a lot of developer tools are actually making it easier for developers to create apps without writing a ton of code. We're just kind of like wiring up APIs together. Uh, and I think that's fine. I think it's great. But I think it's one of those things that we should just be aware of as software developers that this is what our job is becoming. And we should think about, like, you know, what does that mean for the way that you pick tools you use and the way that you you learn new skills and the, the programming languages you do and where you spend your time, maybe, which is at the, the time when I was thinking about. So this one's done really well in Hacker News and Reddit before. Uh, and then the last one is this uh, list of best Golang blogs. And this actually does go back to our conversation about like good SEO content can be really interesting. So a lot of times listicles can be tough, right? Like listicles are just these like roundups of, of, of things like blogs or, or people or websites or whatever. And a lot of people do them primarily for SEO because they tend to like, you know, people search online. Like if I was to search best Golang blogs or go blogs, this article comes up in the top 10. So it did that part well, which is great. But most of the articles out there are, pretty light on detail and not really written by technical people. They're just like purely content marketers aiming to hit that front spot on Google. This is actually by a developer who's been learning Go for the last couple of years. And so it's like, of course, she had really great insights into like some of these pieces. And it's actually kind of interesting. It did, it trended on the like Golang subreddit for a while. So it got a lot of backlinks through that and through newsletters. And so it's, you can write interesting content that does well in search engines, but you do need to think about that a little more um, and maybe be a little more be willing to go the extra mile like in this piece which is a, a pretty long and in-depth kind of piece one of our strategic seo pieces we started with was a list of uh, 50 plus uh, SaaS podcasts that we put together and we're going to link to that in the show notes as well and we've done the dirty work of actually describing each show with paragraph of substantial copy, including all the links to different platforms and just uh, trying to dig out every possible, you know, two people talking about their journey types of shows and just classify and, and many yep. other types of shows and just a gigantic bulk of work. And I think it did really well because of that. Yeah. Yeah. We did, Similarly, we had the writer actually, and we had all series of these posts about different programming languages, but we had the writers actually grade them on writing quality, consistency, how oh, long the blog has been so around. <laughs> yeah. So like, you're not just getting, this is a good blog. You're getting a little bit of quantitative data. Now I'll admit that there's a, you know, writing quality is maybe a little subjective and I'm sure she didn't read every single post they've ever written, but she can at least separate the things that are like clearly just nobody even edited the piece versus the ones that are really well-written and have like a, a good consistent story and flow. So, um, yeah, it's a, I, I think that you're right. Like these, <laughs> the, this kind of stuff can do really well. The other thing I've noticed from these kinds of pieces is they tend to pick up backlinks really well because the article or the people you reference here might backlink back to you or share it on social media where it gets more, more pull. And so 
these are good for picking up, like just building your overall domain authority, making your site more reputable. And they're not always just cheap hack jobs. Like, yeah, they sometimes get the reputation of being. As we're wrapping up today's episode, because we have to, um, one do and one don't for for our listeners who want to produce awesome technical content. One do, the first do is to like be a little bit strategic with your content. A lot of early stage companies and, and companies just getting started with content marketing, they think like, okay, I'll just, you know, we'll just start writing stuff randomly and haphazardly and not have much of a like plan for where it fits in your funnel and who is the reader and why they should care about it. So this is where you see a lot of blogs doing things like all they have is like product updates and random like notes from the CEO. And it's like, what is this? You know, like, is this a, is this helpful? Is this is like ramblings? Like what are, what are we doing here? So get a little, like learn a little bit about content strategy and get into that first and try to like understand what the pieces are going to do because producing good content is it is expensive and doing it at like doing it poorly is going to be a, lo- a good way to burn a lot of money it's kind of like running google ads when you have no way to to actually convert people over to to paying users or something and it's like yeah you can spend a lot of money you can get a lot of page views but is that the goal or are you trying to actually make money here so have a strategy behind it and then the don't is, is this is like don't forget to promote it. Like, don't forget to talk about the content you write. It's not magically going to find its way to millions of users. Even if you write it with SEO in mind, you still have to find a way to get it in front of people. And so uh, we have a, a promotional checklist I'll, I'll send over as well that might be helpful. It's just, you know, again, free stuff we write on our blog. But um, we basically have just a big like checklist of how to promote each piece. And not every piece gets every single item on the checklist because you sort of have to run it through a filter of like, does it make sense based on the context? But it certainly helps to have a starting point where you're not just guessing at like, oh, did we post that to Facebook? I don't know, whatever. So that that's something else is like come up with your own little promotional plan for each piece and then have somebody spend, like we literally will spend two to four hours promoting a piece that might have taken four to eight hours to write. Not everybody has that same ratio, but that just gives you one benchmark of how you might do it. And where can people find more of what you do online? Yeah, so draft.dev is the easiest place to find out about the company. Uh, We have a blog, draft.dev slash learn. Again, it's a lot of our internal processes we share, we're very open with, as well as interesting, hopefully interesting content most of the time. (laughs) I think that's the best way. I'm also on Twitter at Carl L. Hughes. Happy to chat more there and answer questions. I always love talking about this stuff, even if we're not a good fit at draft.dev for your company, I'm always happy to to pass you on to resources or people who might be really, really good fits. Amazing. Thanks so much for sharing your hard-earned wisdom with us today and have a wonderful rest of the week. Yeah. Thanks, Jane. Thanks for listening. If you found the episode useful, please spread the word about this new show on Twitter mentioning Userlist or leave us a review on iTunes.